Welcome to the 75th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the usefulness of single board computers. With us is a special guest, Ken Mink, who has done a lot of embedded work and thinks of single board computers as a hobby. The single board computer we're talking about here is things like the Raspberry Pi that gained popularity after the release in early 2012. Um, think a, a small credit card size device that has a USB port, an Ethernet port, a CPU, some RAM, whatever else you need on it to boot up and run Linux. And they started kind of hobbled and they've grown increasingly more capable. And it was an educational project from the very beginning. Yeah, the original ones were set up to be sent out and used by educational institutions to teach anybody how to write programming, um, write code. So they're, I think it was all designed to be Python and still is for the most part. And they're quite capable little machines nowadays. Uh, the first ones were really, really basic. Um, but nowadays you can do quite a bit with Pies. According to the the benchmarks and stuff, and I'll throw a link into those the show notes about the original Raspberry Pi. But the original Pi had roughly the compute performance of like a 300 megahertz Pentium 2, which harkens back to the heady days of 1997. But things Dude, have come along. That's when I took the college. That was, that was wonderful back then. But you can do a surprisingly large number of things on these little machines. And they also have the benefit of having exposed GPIO pins. So you can do hardware PWM, pulse width, pulse width modulation. You can do SPI. You can do I2C. You can do a bunch of kind of low-level hardware things. And for a hobbyist or a hacker or a hardware developer, you suddenly have access to internals of a machine that you don't usually have easy access to. Either you're buying cards for it or you're, you're doing other things to get into the internals. And with these little devices, well, they're 30 bucks a piece. So if you blow one up, you don't really care that much. You don't, it's not like you're, you're not burning out a $3,000 desktop. You just get another one. And most of these things are, are fairly, um, are fairly forgiving. Like if you reverse ground and 3.3 and volt, it doesn't usually blow the, blow the board out. You're usually okay. So you can just, oh, I, I cross-wired it. I'll put it back and you're, you're back in business. I can tell you from experience that they do tend to survive that. Done that quite a bit. Um, I have one wired to my garage door opener, and uh, when I was first trying to get things set up, sure enough, had had ground and hot backwards. But that's also one of the nice things about them. They are, if you do fry it, you you just toss it and get another one. Although it's uh, pies now have become kind of a generic name for them, and it's a little annoying, especially the fruit part of it because I have banana pies and orange pies and raspberry pies, and it's hard to keep track of what you're, which part of the salad you're using that on any particular day for whatever the job is. So I have a handful of Raspberry Pi 2s. I have a Raspberry Pi 3, and I have a BeagleBone Black, which was a, an, a Texas instrument board. But Ken, you've got, you've got a bunch that I've never heard of before or hadn't until I, I kind of talked to you about it. Can you kind of list through what you have and what makes them special or different? So let's see. Um, yeah, when in preparation for this, I decided to take inventory and discovered I have a problem because I have over 20 different Pi variations or SBCs because some of them aren't actual Pies. Um, I've got an orange Pi, banana of different flavors. Both of those are actually have a lot of different models, um, more than the Raspberry Pis. 
I saw a nano pie. That one was, um, God, bought it off of Alley. It's the only place I've been able to find it. But it came as a kit with a small LCD on the top or LED. Um, and I, ha I use that as a, when I'm on the road access point, um, it's got Wi-Fi and wired. And I, when I'm on the road, I'll plug it in, in the hotel wire. It tells me it's an IP address on the screen. I can then also on the, the little screen with a couple of buttons, bring up VPN back to the house to work or commercial. I've got three of them set up in there and then I connect to it with my laptop. And now I have a secure VPN when I'm on the road. And, um, let's see what else I have. I have my current favorite, which is the Atomic Pie. Um, I'll circle back to that in a second. Um, and of quite a number of Raspberry Pis. Um, I have a cluster, five node cluster of Rock 64s, which come from Pine 64. They're also, they are a very capable um, board. Um, but the, as I said, the Atomic Pi is a really interesting one um, because it's x86-64, UEFI, you don't need a special distro or anything else, run whatever you want on it. It comes with built-in storage, two gig of RAM, USB three gig E, and it's $42. And the price cannot be beat. The downside is it is non-standard from a Pi point of view in every other way. It's a size that nobody else is. It uses power from different connectors than anybody else. Um, it's kind of annoying. It's not as open as others. It was a add-on board for a robotic toy and the toy tanked and the company that had all the boards said, we got to do something with these little software changes add a few ports and they started selling them as pies just to unload the backlog of hardware. And when they're done, they're done. So buying one, you take the risk that if you use it in something production-y, when it dies, you may not be able to get another one because the back, um, the warehouses run dry and that's all there is. Uh, but I, I, I really like it. I'm using it for a backup host and I'm using it with ZFS because you can't do ZFS without x86-64 and none of these, almost none of these small computers can do that. And I really like the Atomic for that. Um, but like I said, it's a little, it's a different size. It's bigger than most. And the power connector is bizarre. Yeah. Back in the beginning, the, the Raspberry Pi came out with the ARM processor and it was a 32 bit variant. I forget which instruction set it had on it. And I think it became popular in part because mobile phones had started using the ARM processor set. So a lot of software developers were doing things in that space. And it very quickly, it very quickly took off and, and kind of caught on and got better and better and faster. And we're now on 64-bit cores, and we have more more modern instruction sets. So they're becoming full-featured. But for a very long time, finding a piece of software you wanted to run on a Pi meant going and finding the source code and recompiling it and hoping there were no x86-specific libraries or the NDNs didn't matter for whichever processor family you were on or whatever else was going on because some of these recompiles were not trivial. Some of these took a lot of work and a lot of muscle to kind of figure out but we're at the point now that you can run, you know, go lang on it. You can, there are environments for scheduling containers on ARM processors. If you're, 
into a larger space, you can get ARM in data centers, you can get in rack servers for doing low power, high throughput workloads that way. So it's definitely coming along, but I very much credit the Raspberry Pi and mobile operating systems and mobile devices, mobile cell phones and tablets and whatnot as being the main driver of making this whole landscape possible. Yeah, mobile phones and iPads and tablets and stuff have really pushed the arm really hard, and they've gotten to an amazing point. I mean, your cell phone that's in your pocket is a few more chips, but is really something very close to these. A lot of the other brands of Pies also offer Android as a, uh, as the operating system you can get with it. Um, and that goes right along with it is it, they, they have their, their origins back in the mobile area and it's still there. Also though, most of the mainline distros offer pre-built images for the bigger of the pies, most notably the raspberry, but sometimes a few of the others. And you just, you know, dump the image on an SD card, stick it in and off you go. Yeah. I, I kind of like, I kind of default to the raspberry Pi because everybody who does this space supports the Pi, if nothing else. And once you have Pi support, then the people will branch out and are doing everything else. I was really intrigued by the x86 boards because if you have UEFI and an x86 processor, that is more than half the battle of getting the weird compatibility matrix. And you might not get all the GPIO or some of the more specific or more esoteric pieces of the hardware, but at least five years from now, you can boot it up and use it. I am using one of the Atomic Pies as my residential gateway be running straight Linux because of that fact. I don't have to worry about it being orphaned and not being able to get the code for it anymore because it is running vanilla Linux, um, specifically Dev1, which is my favorite at the moment, which is Debian goodness without system D, which I know we probably aren't going to get into as a, that's a whole separate topic. It's a um, whole separate episode. We may have covered that <laughs> once or twice on this podcast in the past. Three or four times. Yeah. But it now it only has a single nick, but it has USB three, so I threw a USB three um nick on there and it's for in and out and it's tacked up on the wall as as my firewall and I don't even have to think about it. And I won't have to think about it when, you know, three or four years now I need to upgrade because it is vanilla. So limitations of the single board computers kind of broadly speaking are they often have what we consider anemic amounts of ram as compared to laptops and desktops and servers that we work on it is not uncommon to have single board computers that have 512 megabytes of ram or one gigabyte and that's the biggest you can get and the really expansive luxurious ones have two or four gigabytes of ram and if you compare this to, you know, your AWS image or your Google compute image or your laptop where you have 16 or 32 gigs of RAM, this feels really constraining, especially on the older, smaller boards. And you have to be kind of careful about what you're doing and how much memory is being used. It, it kind of points out to me how a lot of software developers in the past couple of years have lost sight of how how resource constrained real environments can be, especially when you get into more single use or single purpose environments. And it can be a pain. I think, um, yeah, four gig is about the max. And I've, I've got a number of those. Um, I know Brendan's mentioned that he works uh, with a lot of Elastic in his daily job. And I work with him in that sense. And we were really constrained with for testing purposes. And I bought a five node um, Rock 64 cluster to do some of our testing on 
because our our work environment was was too unforgiving and i went with that board simply for the fact that it had four gig which was pretty much it you could not i i don't know of anyone that actually has more than that at the moment um but you know they are very resource constrained for ram um 512 even a few of them are 256 and that's just that's just the way they are, but they're, they are made for a different purpose. I use them kind of in the way other people use VMs and I run, you know, one single small task on one, throw it up on the board and forget about it because it's doing one thing. It uses next to no power and it's cheap to replace. So a physical container. Pretty much that it really is. And I've, I've got one that, you know, is doing DNS and, and, uh, DHCP and that's all it's doing. Um, I've got one that's, uh, the one that's connected to the garage door opener does nothing else. It's it, it, all it offers is a button to pop the garage door. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how did you wire that up? What are you doing with that? How is that currently working? So I have a, a it was a, one of the, it's a two B, one of the early two Bs and it is, I have my actual garage door connectors are just an open close switch. And I took those wires and ran another set to the, to some relays um, just so that I didn't have to worry about voltage. The switches are low voltage. It wouldn't have been a problem to just run them straight to GBI pins, but relays are cheap enough. <clears throat> and then I ran the relays over to some of the GPIO pins on the Pi. So it's sitting open. I send a signal with the uh, Pi software. Um, oh, and I should have looked it up ahead of time what the software package is called. Um, it's a small Python script that just says, close these, close this pin, waits a couple seconds and then opens. And that causes the relay to close, which closes the circuit and the door opens. Um, yeah. Now to make it more usable, there, Apache is on there. I have also, and it hosts a single page that is two buttons tied to CGI to run those scripts and a uh, picture from a uh, security camera inside the garage pointed at the doors so that I can see the two garage doors with the two buttons below them. And I just click on the appropriate button and, I, and it's a video. I can watch the door go up and down so I can see that it's actually working. And all of it's protected with certificate authentication. So I come at home, I just pull up my phone, go to that page, pop the garage door. Yeah, I, uh, I built one similar, but I wanted HomeKit. And I really didn't feel like paying the money. HomeKit enabled garage door opener. So I retrofitted it very similar to the way Ken did, uh, except I just wrote a Go program, the Home Troll Go library. Uh, to provide the home kit. And I actually went ahead and added two uh, uh, read switches, one at the top when it's open and one at, when it's closed. Uh, so that way I can give feedback of whether it's open, closed, or opening. Or, but yeah, really a game changer to be able to say like, hey Siri, open garage, open the garage door. That is kind of magical. I like, I like that idea. Um, I haven't, my next step is, and um, which was a hint from that monodrama, was putting um, another pie monitoring the garage door with ultrasonic sensors to know when it's open and closed and given that feedback it's kind of annoying when i'm doing it say i'm in the car having to look at the screen to tell is it working or not when i could just have some kind of signal pop back that it's done yeah that's pretty cool and we'll throw a link into the show notes for jared's um garage door control code the golang stuff i have a similar but different use of a uh, raspberry pi wired up in my home office i 
recently restored a commercial espresso machine because I have problems in that sense. And I didn't, tr I, I wanted to be able to measure how much I was spending in electricity on the machine. So I wired the heating element to a 30 amp solid state relay, which I now control via um, control code on the Raspberry Pi. And I have a RTD, a platinum PT100 um, resistance temperature detector in the boiler so I can see how hot the steam is. And then I can automatically turn the boiler on and off. And I wrote a very simple PID algorithm, which I don't suggest anybody actually ever do. But I realized that by doing this, it would not take a lot to wire it into HomeKit. So I think I'm using the same library that you are, Jared. And I have it now set up so I can tell, I can tell my phone to turn the coffee machine on and off. And I can have it on a schedule and, you know, at dawn, turn it on, that kind of thing. And it's really kind of handy to be able to automate these home projects that otherwise either cost insane amounts of money or don't do what you want them to do. So being able to say, no, no, this does exactly what I care to make it do is kind of empowering and fun. Yeah, that's that's something that I, I enjoy as well. And and one thing I was thinking about before this podcast was, uh, you know, I wonder if Radio Shack of the heyday, my memories of Radio Shack are walking in and being able to pick up actual parts like uh, capacitors and various things to do and electronic kit. I wonder if Pi maybe could have helped them. They would have embraced it and they were still around when it came out. You're not the only one with that idea. It, it, they really could have made a real maker space, possibly, you know, I don't know how big that market is, but it would have been interesting to see them embrace if it. If they got behind yeah. Pies and the maker space and that, that space... They would be a profitable company, I think, now. They had tried, but they went with Arduino. Um, right at the very end, if you had gone in there, they had At the very end, you could get some Arduinos there, yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah. I've got, actually, more Arduinos at the house than I do Raspberry Pis. I, I recently got into the ESP8266s, which is a little Arduino with 802.11BGN and Bluetooth 4 low power on it. And it still runs the entire... Arduino stack, and there's a couple of other things you can run so you can get Lua or whatever other scripting languages on there that you like. But they're three dollars a piece. They're extraordinary like Arduinos, and and I don't do a lot with them. I'm really captivated by the fact that you can do real embedded programming, and you're in an environment where you've got to know the C, you've got to know the libraries, you've got to know the architecture to make the device work. But it's it's phenomenal to me that I can have a little two dollar microcomputer that when it gets powered on within three or four seconds it's joined the wi-fi and it's ready to receive commands or do whatever or monitor the things i'm asking it to monitor i'm currently working on getting temperature sensors for the house that i can wire up and have report to HomeKit that are going to cost me probably on the order of five or six dollars a piece and that's all in with shipping and that's almost impossible to beat for like truly single purpose devices like the raspberry pi you can take it and repurpose it later but these things are so limited in terms of just the flash memory on them and, and everything else that you have to dedicate them to specific purposes you can't kind of reprogram on the fly easily but i love them i've not played with them i use most of my pies more as single use but general computing devices and don't do that much with the gpio i mean i've done some but not a lot and those little boards that you've been playing with, oh, they're so intriguing and cool. I just haven't come up with something to, to sink my teeth in to, to do it with. And actually, while we're on the kind of the topic of generally the small boards that we do things with, I recently wanted... I, uh, the root cause of this was I didn't want a power outage to knock my temperature control circuit for my espresso machine offline. And yeah, I know that's silly, but whatever. 
so I did a little bit of research, and there's I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes for this as well. But there are very inexpensive 18650 lithium ion kind of charging boards that if you were building a USB battery pack, for example, this these would be a great starting point for a prototype board. You have USB in on one side, you have um, three and five volt hardwired tie-ins on the sides, and you have a 1.2 amp five volt USB out on the other. And it takes a pair of 18650 standard size batteries, but it works in constant charging. So if you plug it into the wall and you turn it on, it is it is powering it the the output port is powered while the input port, port is charging the batteries. And it makes for a really handy, extraordinarily inexpensive UPS for either your Raspberry Pi or your Arduino or whatever little project you're working on. And I get 10, 12 hours of runtime at full tilt on my Raspberry Pi for the espresso machine off of a pair of 18650s and I don't I don't even know if the if the 18650s are quality ones and it works really well. So there's a whole world of these little cheap electronics that you can you can dive into and the the cost of ordering the wrong thing or kind of screwing up is really low. The batteries and the charging brick together I want to say cost me 8 bucks, 7 bucks shipped. Yeah, I I bought the exact same setup Brendan did. Um I use it for uh on long trips in the car. I have a Pi hosting um, that has Wi-Fi as a access point and a media server and a thumb drive with all the movies for the kids. And they tell them to just bring their tablets and they connect to that and they can stream whatever they want off that without fighting over who's watching what. However, plugged into the, into the circuit in the car, when I turned the car off, it would drop. And I bought one of these setups that for, that Brendan was just describing so that I can pull in the gas up the car, turn it off, and it switches over to battery. The media server keeps going. The kids are happy. Mom and dad are happy. We take off again. It goes back. Fantastic. And like you said, seven, eight bucks. For me, the... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's a pretty cool idea. For me, the hardest part about any of this is soldering. I am not good at soldering. Horrible at it. And I am trying to get better, but... I don't have the right skills. I haven't skills. soldered since I was like eight years old. My soldering looks like I'm eight years old. It, mine's really terrible. Um, I'm not even going to post a link to any of my to a picture of my soldering work because it's uniformly awful. I've been blessed with a good friend who's a fantastic solderer, and I've always just said, Brian, can you do this for me? Because mine's pathetic. I had a um, Cherry MX keyboard that I managed to break one of the keys, and I tried to do it myself and butchered it and had to, to bring it to him to undo my attempt to replace a key and fix it. Because it was that bad. So, what are the specs of the current Raspberry Pi Four? Because the fours just came out not too long ago. So the fours have a quad-core, sixty-four bit, one point five gigahertz um, Cortex A seven, I think, or sorry, an A seventy two, and you can get it with one, two, or four gigs of RAM. So that's pretty respectable. Um, that's I don't, a real computer. Yeah, I don't do much with the video side of things. I know that they're touting being able to run a pair of 4k displays at some frame rate i'm not sure if it's at 60 frames a second or not um but notably the power requirements have gone up from the 5 volt half a milliamp or half an amp to 5 volt 3 amp to be able to in turn power all of the other devices hanging off of it um they finally fixed one of the long-standing limitations of the Raspberry Pi, which was the USB 3 and the Ethernet shared, or sorry, the USB stuff shared its bus with the Ethernet, so you never actually got gigabit, gigabit Ethernet out of it in the past. 
and they have finally moved to a model where you actually have a, a dedicated bus. So the gigabit Ethernet port is actually gigabit Ethernet. The, the USB 3 ports are full speed. It's looking a lot better, but of course it takes a lot more power to do all of that. Yeah. The the old ones had their backplane was a severe limitation. I, I was using them for things. And if you were pumping a lot of data through the NIC back out to a disk hanging off the USB, at a certain point, the entire thing would just collapse and reboot. Um, it just, you could not use them for anything with any serious IO because they just could not do it. Um, but the I new know, one, I've looked I, at pies for um, firewalls and routers and that kind of level stuff. And they just didn't have the architecture to really support that well. You knew like two Ethernet ports that aren't bandwidth constrained. Yeah, I think the, the I think the Raspberry Pi 4 um, will do that better now. But of course, I will the let one seems of them. to have the backplane to do it yeah. you still have to attach some usb-c ethernet dangles to it but well i have a usb-3 do it now i have a usb-3 gigabit ethernet um adapter somewhere in my bag of adapters my magical bag of crazy adapters and i will pick up a raspberry pi 4 just as happens once they're not um, supply constrained so whenever i get one in i will let you know i let our dear listeners know as well um how that works because i'm always looking for better uses for self-controlled pieces and i would love to run something like pf sense on a single board computer like i said i'm using one of the atomic pies as my firewall and since it's x86 64 it's and it has a real backplane i'm i have not noticed any bandwidth limitations and it really works well for that but it did take a usb3 nick to give it the internet in the second port that yeah it wasn't a few years ago where you really wouldn't notice the difference bandwidth wise but now if you're in any reasonable city getting 200 or 400 or gigabit bandwidth is actually possible i used to use one of the original shiva plugs which was before the pies um even existed as a, it was a sing, very similar thing as my router and it was a usb2 nick and at one point, my provider upgraded my connection, and I discovered I was m- my be- choke point was me, which I never thought would happen. That my equipment could not go as fast as my connection. Yep, been there, <laughs> been there. Yeah, my resource constraint is I now have gigabit Ethernet at home effectively, and whatever I do for rolling my own firewall, it has to be able to handle line speed of a gigabit and. Yeah, that that rules out a lot of the the really cheap stuff. And I have got I've since gotten rid of the machine that I was running it on because it was an old like PC and it felt really silly to be running a full-size PC just to handle routing. We'll put I've in been the using a show Shell notes. XPC with some good Intel NICs in it and it runs PFSense pretty well, but it's definitely not what you could do with a single board computer. I'll put it in the the notes, but there's the single board computer database which is a site where you can say, I want a single board computer with two gig E NICs and, or I want with gig E and a USB three or whatever. And there are actually quite a few out there because there's a lot more in the field than just the pies that everybody knows. Um, and there are a few that have two, three, four, five NICs. Um, however, when you start getting some of those, you leave the affordable range. Um, they start becoming a few hundred bucks and, you know, if you have an industrial application where you need something that is supported and, you know, you buy in bulk, they start making sense. But for just buying something for the house, maybe not so much anymore. But there are quite a few out there that can handle all that type of stuff. That would be super handy. Thank you for that. So my kind of pipe dream has been around 
the fact that I usually build my own workstations and build my own Linux boxes and have quite a bit of, of server customization experience, I've always sort of wanted to build my own portable machine, build my own laptop, which is a much more constrained project. You can get laptop shells and customize a few parts in them, but it's really not building your own PC. And I've really thought that we can't be far away from being able to build a portable setup based on a Raspberry Pi 4 or something similar that would actually be a workable computer that you could pack in your bag and hop on the plane with. There have been a number of projects that I've seen referenced um, here and there for doing either laptops with Raspberry Pis or tablets with, with Raspberry Pis. Um, I'll see if I can dig some of them up and stick them in the show notes because I, I don't have any yeah. that come to mind as reliable ones right now. Maybe dear listeners of ours could suggest ones that they've worked with or they've seen before. That would be I've awesome. seen a few mentioned here and there, but I don't know. I haven't tried any myself, but I there are a few out there where yeah, it's got a case with a screen and you slip your pie in it and maybe connect a keyboard and off you go. The Pine 64 folks, I think, sell a laptop as a separate product, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And I apologize if you hear the keyboard in the background because I'm going to find out. But that might be something that would work as well if they are doing that. God, that was sticking in my head bad. Sorry. Yeah, this this opens up especially with having either um, Chrome OS or Android or Linux running on a device. The ability to kind of roll your own hardware platform that you know exactly what's in it. You know what it's capable of. You know that nobody else has snuck other stupid things in there or has added a keyboard you really can't stand or what have you. You're not wasting money on components you're never going to use, like a high-end graphics card when you do mostly SSH work. And you know that you're never going to get locked out of loading whichever version of Linux you like on it because you control the bootloader, you control the whole nine yards. You're not you're not relying on the benevolence of somebody who makes really shiny silver hardware. Yeah, but then it's not... Yeah, I trust myself. <laughs> well, that actually, that actually brings up a point. Some of these boards, you can get... Linux, but it's only from the manufacturer, their distro that's rolled because of custom components in there. And I've had ones that have orphaned that there's no updates available. None of the mainline folks are providing it and you're just stuck with what's there. They didn't maybe open source all the bits or they did, but you know, compiling your own kernel on one of these things could take days. They don't have a lot of processing power. Um, there is a project Armbian that goes out of their way to support lots and lots of different boards. And they have a wonderful site where you can look up what they support at what level, um, maybe running an old kernel because of that, but with newer distro. Um, but sometimes boards do get orphaned where you're, because there's no, nobody's producing any updates for them. Um, obviously the, the main Raspberry Pi products don't qualify for that. They do stay supported a long time, but there are some smaller ones that do end up no longer receiving updates and you gotta that's that's something to pay attention to if it's something you may be using long term uh while we're on lists of concerns the other thing that i've run into in the past is especially the earlier raspberry pi boards have a limited support for various wi-fi networking standards or don't have any wi-fi at all so you have to buy a, a dongle and use up some of your power and your usb ports in terms of your budget for doing those pieces. So when you are buying these devices, check to see what they support and check to see what you're trying to do with it. Um, it's to the point that I have a 2.4 gigahertz wireless network running just for random Internet of Things devices because I don't want to. I don't want to provide. 
I don't want to make it a mixed network to slow everything else down, but I also want to get these things, you know, connected reliably to my home internet, home, my home network. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 75th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.